This week, squashing the unsquashable, the weird physics of high pressures. We are not aware of any earlier reports of this type of effects. And what exactly was revolutionary about the scientific revolution? A new book looks back on the making of modern science. So for the first time you get the awareness that a lot of inherited knowledge is unreliable and you can't trust anything unless it's been fundamentally tested. Plus building a tabletop particle accelerator. This is The Nature Podcast for August 27th, 2015. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. As a Nature Podcast listener, no doubt the scientific method is your bread and butter. Build a theory, make a prediction, and test. And so knowledge grows and we gradually improve on our old assumptions. But do you ever wonder how these methods of modern science came about? David Witten, a historian at the University of York, argues that science as we know it was forged at the end of Europe's Renaissance, starting in around 1570. Over the course of more than a century, scholars began to challenge old authorities and even invented a new language of discovery. David has summed up the revolution in a new book called The Invention of Science. In it, he attempts to put to bed a 50-year debate. Did the scientific revolution really give birth to modern science? Reporter Lizzie Gibney first asked David where and when he thinks the revolution began. 1572 is the moment when uh, Tycho Brahe and various other astronomers, Tycho the first, see a new star in the sky. It becomes extremely bright, it becomes brighter than the planet Venus, and it's an astonishing phenomenon because in the world, intellectual world in which Tycho Brahe lived, change in the heavens was impossible. And after six weeks or so, it began to fade away, but behind was left a hundred books discussing this phenomenon, and that's the beginning of a new astronomy, when for the first time people began to think the astronomy they'd inherited from the ancients no longer worked, and that by making more careful observations and more accurate measurements, they would be able to construct a new understanding of the heavens. So the scientific revolution, as you call it in your book, was not just about astronomy, um, but it then had a knock-on effect into other areas of what we would now call science. What happened from then on up till, up till Newton? The other, as it were, big development is the development of what we call the experimental method. And the first great experimentalist is William Gilbert, publishes in England in 1600 on magnetism. And Galileo picks up Gilbert's book by chance. It's given to him by some philosopher who's basically trying to toss it away. And Galileo starts doing experiments, really important experiments with pendula and with falling bodies in the very first years of the 17th century. So it wasn't, it's not just in the knowledge, but it's in how we came about that knowledge. Is that right? It's how we came about that knowledge, which involves it involves the experimental method in one, in one respect. One of the fundamental things it involves is a new scepticism about things that people had always taken to be true. For example, ancient Greeks and ancient Romans had all said that if you took a piece of garlic and rubbed it on a magnet, the magnet would cease to work. And right through into the 17th century, you can find people asserting that this must be the case because it's been stated by the ancient Greek and ancient Roman philosophers, and, and that's the end of the discussion. From... Um, the 1560s on, you get people pouring garlic juice into compasses and showing that the compass carries on working. So for the first time, you get the awareness that a lot of inherited knowledge is unreliable and that you can't trust anything unless it's been fundamentally tested. And what drives that, I think, is the great technological revolution of printing, because it means you get many more sources of information and you can start comparing them and good knowledge begins to drive out bad. And without the printing press, I think there wouldn't have been a scientific revolution. 
this culture of experimentation does seem to have come about during that period. So why is it then still that you felt the need to write this book, which is a, a lovely and but very lengthy argument? Who is it that, that you're um, arguing against? Well, I'm arguing against what I would call the, the orthodox position in history of science. And, and the orthodox position is that if we pick out good science and put to one side bad science, what we're doing is making an, a judgment from our point of view, and that's an anachronistic judgment. What we need to do is study the past from the point of view of people at the time. If at the time they thought that alchemy, for example, was a genuine form of understanding and that you really could turn base metals into gold, which Newton believed perfectly clearly and Robert Boyle believed, then we must accept that as being as good knowledge as their knowledge of astronomy or whatever. The problem with that argument is that our ordinary understanding of the world constantly involves us looking at what outcomes are and going back and saying, ah, now we've seen the outcome. That alters how we understand what's going on. So perfectly sensible to write a history of the Second World War in which you ask, why did Hitler lose? Although it wasn't clear until 1943, say, that Hitler was going to lose. So one of the first things I have to do is argue that you can write history with the benefit of hindsight. And a lot of historians would say, you just can't do that. And to that, my reply is, if you're going to say there's to be no use of hindsight, you're going to make history a discipline which is incapable of understanding and grappling with change and incapable of providing any useful explanations at all. It's going to become, in my view, a somewhat pointless discipline. Overall, the idea that science was invented in this period is, is, is quite intuitive and, and compelling, I think, at least to scientists. But how do you think your book is going to go down within the history of science world? Uh, I think it's going to cause uh, considerable controversy and there's going to be a good deal of hostility to it. But I, I would say, I think, and this is something we've touched on, that some degree what I'm doing in the book is going through aspects of the history of science that people have known about for a long time. Tycho Brahe on the, on the new star and so on. But one of the things that I'm doing that is fundamentally new, I think, I'm showing that there's the emergence of a whole new language for thinking about science. It begins with the word discovery. And if you take the word discovery, it, it's first used in its modern sense in Portuguese in about 1488, 1490, because what's been claimed is that Columbus has made a fundamental discovery. He's found something that wasn't supposed to be there, a whole, a whole new continent, the continent of America. The discovery of America was, was the first moment when new, what we call evidence, new evidence destroys old theories. That's the first moment it becomes clear that new facts, as we call them, can trump old arguments. Facts in the modern sense of objective realities in nature don't exist until, uh, in English, the middle of the 17th century. Now, that new language is the language which we still use to do science. And that language is put in place in the 1660s and 1670s, and it marks the crystallization of a new way of thinking because it's the language with, you, with, with which you can think about knowledge that is reliable but can yet in the future be improved. That was historian David Wooten talking with Lizzie Gibney. His book, The Invention of Science, is on sale at all good book places from the 17th of September. And there's a podcast extra with David Wooten live on our website. Kerry. What's your favourite element? Where are you going with this? No, seriously, what's your favourite element? Well, thanks for asking. I've often thought of myself as... Mine a... is osmium. 
Why is osmium your favourite? Well, it's funny you should ask, because osmium seems all innocuous sitting in the middle of the periodic table, but it's actually pretty awesome. It's the densest element, weighing about twice as much as lead. It's also incredibly hard, barely squashing at all when under really high pressures. That information is great, Adam, but why are you telling me this now? Well, it just so happens that some researchers have applied record-breaking pressures to osmium recently. And to get these high pressures, you need to apply as big a force as possible over as small an area as possible, using something really hard. To create the small surface, people conventionally used diamonds. This is Igor Abrikosov of Linköping University in Sweden, a theoretician working on this squishing team. The problem is that uh, diamonds crash in this type of experiments. So what do you do when even diamonds can't handle the huge forces? Go smaller again. If you make the surface smaller, then you can have higher pressure. To make the surface smaller, they put between the two diamonds two extra semispheres made of nanodiamonds. You heard that right. They put tiny diamonds on their diamonds. Isn't this just the blingest experiment ever? The delightful double diamond device was able to achieve pressures that are twice that of the centre of the Earth. And then they put my favourite element in the middle. And when they started to ramp up the pressure on osmium, they saw something funny start to happen. Usually, uh, interatomic distances change more or less uh, uniformly when you compress elements. But in case of osmium, we saw two bumps in this metal, uh, which was quite unusual. What did you initially think were causing these blips? Uh, So we have to talk about outer electrons and inner electrons of the atoms. Inner electrons, which are closest to their nuclei, were extremely strongly attracted by their nucleus. At the same time, the electrons, which are most distant from the nuclear, they feel the attraction of nuclear to much less degree. They are free to leave their respective atoms. And they start to travel between different atoms. They form kind of glue, which keeps atoms together. It's these outermost electrons of the atoms, which are really determine the properties of the materials, including interatomic distances. That is why when we saw uh, the bumps on the lattice parameters radio in osmium uh, upon compression, we of course first thought about the behavior of these outermost electrons. We did very advanced calculations and uh, we see that the first bump is really an effect of the behavior of these most outermost electrons. But when we started to look at the second bump, we didn't see anything special in the behavior of outermost electrons. And we were really surprised. And when people normally consider materials, is it really just the outermost electrons that scientists would think about? Most often, yes. But in this particular case, we realized that our experimental colleagues reached really extremely high pressures. They have to start look beyond these outermost electrons and think that probably at such ultra-high pressures, 
something should happen to the inner electrons. So according to your calculations, what do you believe is happening to the inner electrons of the atoms to be causing this blip? When we started to look at the behavior of the inner electrons, which are supposed to occupy very defined orbits and move with very well-defined energies, uh, we started to see that some of these inner electrons start to move exactly with the same energy. And it is quantum mechanical effect. And quantum mechanics is usually quite counterintuitive. But one can think about uh, trains. And usually when we think about trains, we see that they move each at its specific path. And we never think that these paths should cross, and they shouldn't. Uh, for trains, hopefully. And that's the same way how people think about inner electrons. They always move at their specific paths. And these paths never should cross. But this is exactly what happened at this ultra-high pressure. We are not aware of any earlier reports of this type of effects. That was Igor Abrikosov. You can find out more about this team's osmium squashing research over nature.com forward slash nature. Coming up, speeding up positrons in a tabletop particle accelerator. And in the news chat, urban ecology. But first, it's time for the research highlights with Noah Baker. Dark energy and dark matter are always big news, even if your experiment finds nothing. Two new tests have been investigating the makeup of the dark stuff. The first experiment recreated the vacuum-like conditions of outer space in a lab to see if they could find any weird forces that might be dark energy, thought to explain the universe's continuing expansion. You guessed it, they didn't. Meanwhile, another experiment has ruled out three explanations for dark matter. This might sound a bit disappointing, but eliminating suspects helps physicists narrow down their search. Let's hope they eventually catch the culprits. Both those papers are in science. Speaking of long-standing mysteries, scientists have finally worked out how hummingbirds drink nectar. The researchers filmed several species of hummingbird in slow motion as they drank from a specially made see-through flower. It turns out they sip the nectar using their tongues as tiny little pumps. Hummingbird tongues have two grooves running down their length, which expand once the tip of the tongue reaches the nectar, sucking up the liquid. Check out the paper, which contains a pleasingly high number of equations in Proceedings of the Royal Society B. Physicists can be a violent bunch. Not content with squeezing osmium with diamonds, they also like to smash particles together and watch the results, the big subatomic bullies. Usually, particle smashing involves a giant machine like the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider. The particles have to travel tens of kilometres in very expensively built tunnels before they finally collide. So researchers are trying other accelerator designs that may be more powerful while taking up less space. Last year, a team built one half of such a device, and now they have the other half working, in principle at least. Joining me in the studio is Nature editor Leonie Mook. Leonie, first of all, aside from the LHC's speciality, hadrons, what else are physicists interested in colliding? You can also collide other types of particles, for example, electrons and positrons. In fact, uh, the predecessor of the LHC that used the same tunnel, the same 27-kilometer diameter tunnel, uh, was the Large Electron-Positron Collider. And those particles are much lighter 
which gives you uh, advantages and disadvantages, but an advantage is that um, you can do precision measurements much better because just the collisions are less messy. You just got fewer ingredients, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Accelerating electrons and positrons, then, is exactly what this new device is trying to do. The idea is to use a blob of plasma to accelerate the particles. And a plasma is basically a mixture of charged particles and free-floating electrons. If you apply an electric field, you can create an intense wave propagating in the plasma that can throw particles forward. Last year, as I mentioned, a team from the Slack facility in California managed to do it with electrons. And here's author Michael Litos explaining the principle to us last year. What we use is actually two bunches of electrons. One bunch is sent in first, and that one creates the wake within the plasma. So it pushes all of the plasma electrons out of the way. The second bunch of electrons, which is the one that we want to accelerate, is traveling just behind the first bunch, and it's inside this little wake structure. And so our second bunch of electrons is traveling inside of this little wake toward the back of it where the electric fields are extremely high. And what you end up doing is transferring the energy from this first bunch of electrons, the drive bunch we call it, that drives the wake, to the second bunch of electrons that's trailing behind it. And you can transfer a lot of energy in a very short amount of space. So it's like that trailing bunch of electrons is kind of riding on this wave of energy in the plasma electrons. So, Leonie, back to you. That's the principle we've just heard, but there's been a new development in this week's Nature from the same team, in fact. What have they been doing recently? So they're able to make positrons surf on this wake. This is not completely unprecedented, I should say, so people have have tried to make positrons surf on a wake before, but um, at these kinds of you know energies and and these kinds of performance parameters. This is quite um, quite exciting. <laughs> what other challenges come when you try and do this with positrons rather than electrons? Positrons are basically the antimatter counterpart of electrons. So, in short, this means that everything is reversed. So, for example, if you were to excite this wake with an electron drive bunch you create an ion cavity right behind the bunch because the bunch just expels, you know, all the electrons. And for the witness bunch, this mechanism can focus um, the electrons very well. That's what you want. For positrons, the forces are reversed, so you defocus this bunch, which is very unfortunate. So you can't use the same mechanism. You can't drive the thing with an electron bunch and then have the positrons surf on the wake. That doesn't work. Because um, y- they're everywhere. They're just they, of, yeah, yeah, they're they're unfocused, just like, floating around. Exactly, exactly. So you can also uh, drive the wake with a positron bunch, but... Uh, you have to find the exact right regime because if you have the witness bunch basically in the wrong distance compared to the to the to the drive bunch, they would actually be decelerated, and you have to get it just right to accelerate the positrons. But they've managed it uh, exactly. And is this more of a proof of principle than a working positron accelerator? Would you say right now? Definitely more proof of principle. So what they've done is they don't even have a real witness bunch basically what they what they have is a drive bunch and of, then, positrons. of positrons and then the rear of the bunch kind of um, becomes the witness bunch and gets accelerated on this on this wake and and as yet they haven't teamed these things up they haven't put their electron accelerator next to their positron accelerator in the lab and 
tried to smash anything. No, they haven't. <laughs> I think that we're talking of far future. But these things have the potential to be a lot more powerful than and high energy than things like the Large Hadron Collider. Well, especially they have the potential to be to be very powerful while also being much smaller. So, for example, the 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 next generation accelerator that people at CERN are talking about is the future circular collider, and if the future circular collider is ever built, it will be 100 kilometers in diameter. Huge. Wow. And um, so the problem is, in normal accelerators, you have this radio frequency electric field and that accelerates the particles. And it, there's a limit to how large that can be, because otherwise the material around it just breaks. But, you know, a plasma is essentially material that's already broken. The electrons are already ripped off the neutrons and the protons in the in the in the atomic nucleus, so no problem there. So you can have much larger larger gradients, field gradients, on a very very short um, distance, and that's the big advantage of plasma wake field accelerators. Thanks for joining us, Leonie. For the paper, as ever, head to nature.com/nature. Time now for our weekly news chat, and Dan Cressy joins me in the studio. Hi, Dan. Hello. So our first story is regarding two Russian factories in two different locations, and they have been increasing the amount of a greenhouse gas that they produce. Now, why is this even a story? So this is a story about the controversial area of carbon credits. And this is the idea that we can incentivize people to reduce the emissions of greenhouse gases, basically by paying them to take these gases out of circulation. Now, what's happened in this case is that these Russian factories were given a financial incentive to remove some very potent greenhouse gases, uh, trifle methane and sulfur hexafluoride, which were produced as waste products. But what happened, according to research published in Nature Climate Change, is that after they started getting a financial incentive to destroy these waste products, they started producing a lot more of these waste products. And we should say it's not clear at all that they're deliberately making these waste products just to claim the money back. But you do get carbon credits, and carbon credits are worth money. They can be traded on international markets. Surely it's expensive for them to make these waste products in the first place. Is it really worthwhile for an organisation to make more of them? So in this case, these particular facilities received millions of carbon credits. And although it seems unusual, in some cases, especially for these very potent greenhouse gases, which cause much more warming uh, per tonne, you could say, than carbon dioxide, the value of the carbon credits can actually exceed the cost of capturing and destroying them. So it seems like there is a loophole in this carbon credit scheme. Has there been any evidence elsewhere that it might be being taken advantage of? One of the things that people have been worried about, about carbon credit schemes in general, is that they can be open to gaming. So, for example, if you're getting a load of credits for doing something, you might decide to do more of that to claim more credits. Now, this isn't against the rules necessarily. It's certainly not against the law. But it certainly raises questions about such schemes, and critics of such schemes have seized 
on incidents in the past to say that, well, we just, just shouldn't be doing this and that maybe when people are negotiating future climate agreements, we should focus on just lowering emissions instead of trying to buy our way out of the problem. Well, it's funny that you mention future climate agreements because, of course, any story about climate at all at the moment happens against the backdrop of the Paris climate talks, which are coming up towards the end of this year. What lessons can we learn from something like this going into Paris? Well, I think this just highlights how complicated a lot of these schemes are and how difficult the negotiations are. And it just goes to show that there's quite often unintended consequences that happen here. And whatever the negotiations come up with in Paris, we'll probably be reading stories like this about that a few years down the line. Is it important then that any agreement is somewhat malleable so it can adapt to these things? This is one of the big problems in all international negotiations is that people want them to be flexible enough that they can adapt to things that happen in the future, but strict enough that people can't find loopholes and profit from them. So now on to a somewhat different environmental story. This one's about a field of ecology in an area that you might not necessarily expect. Yeah, I've just returned from Baltimore where the Ecological Society of America was holding its 100th anniversary meeting. Baltimore is in some ways very, very urban. It's very built up. But it's also uh, really important for people who study urban ecology because there's been a very long-term project there studying the ecology of Baltimore and this is part of a wider area of urban ecology where people have actually set out to study cities and the ecosystems that exist within them. So traditionally ecologists have been thought of as kind of hiking up into the mountains or trying to study lions on the plains and those kind of things. So when did this field start emerging? When did people start studying ecology in cities? Well, people have been talking about urban ecology for a long time, but it's only relatively recently that the field, you could say, has come of age. So part of that is rooted in this idea that ecology happens in the wild and that humans disrupt ecosystems. So why would you study areas where humans have disrupted things to such an extent that they've built these massive buildings? But at the Ecological Society of America meeting in Baltimore, it's really apparent that urban ecology is, is growing hugely. There, there were loads of sessions, and they were really packed, and people were really excited about this field. And that's partly because more and more people are living in cities, but it's also because urban ecologists are starting to come up with interesting findings, and they're actually discussing Discovering things in cities which have relevance to ecology in general. So what kind of things are they beginning to find out? Urban ecology really encompasses everything. So some people study things like how people forage on trees that are in cities. Other people look at the ecosystems that exist in streams and how they differ in cities from streams in the wild. Like anything that you can imagine an ecologist doing in a pristine or so-called pristine area, they're probably also doing in cities at this point in time. Does this field encompass things that might be brought about by climate change and how that affects the ecology of a city? Yeah, and this is one of the, the big issues at the moment. And we've seen it uh, recently with the anniversary of Katrina, which is that some cities are very vulnerable to extreme weather events. And we all know that extreme weather events are predicted to get more likely as our climate changes. So some people think that by understanding the ecology of cities, we can understand how to make cities more resilient, which is a very big buzzword at the moment. So there's things like where your urban vegetation is has a big impact on how stormwater is absorbed or directed. So maybe you can plant more trees or maybe you need to plant trees
boundaries in a certain place and that will help prevent flooding in future. Or even just understanding how your watercourses work could help with that. Equally, extreme heat is another big problem for cities. People get really hot and then they have heat stroke and, and other kind of health events. So how do you provide shade in cities? Ecosystems play a big part in that. It's always really interesting to look at what fields are merging and growing. I feel like we don't often look at what fields are shrinking and dying. Can you think of any examples of fields which seem to be getting diminishing attention rather than increasing? I think any field I mentioned in that context, we'd be getting very angry letters from researchers saying that their field was perfectly healthy. Thank you very much. Maybe we should draw this news chat to a close. Thanks a lot for joining us, Dan. (laughs) Thanks very much. That's all from us this week. But make sure you tune in next time. It's our 400th show. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. Adam, if the Nature podcast were an element, what would it be?